I am, again, I'm very excited to get to be with you guys this morning. Again, I'm grateful to Dr. Earl Kellett for uh, filling the pulpit last Sunday while we were at camp, and I know he did a fantastic job, heard nothing but wonderful, wonderful uh, reports uh, from folks about the worship you guys had last Sunday, and I'm grateful for that. So we are going to continue this morning <clears throat> going through our series called Once Upon a Time, looking at parables that Jesus used to teach his followers kingdom truths, truths about the kingdom of God and truths about salvation. And um, this morning, I want you to find uh, Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to look at a story this morning that Jesus told in a little different setting than the ones that we've looked at so far. Many of the other stories that, that we've seen Jesus tell have been either before large crowds of people or before um, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the ones who were basically trying to hijack um, the Word of God for their own purposes, and as Jesus exposed them. But this time, we're going to look at a story that Jesus told to only his disciples, to his followers, his closest 12, because they had a question. And this is a story that Jesus told in response to a question they had. And I think it's going to be an encouragement for us this morning because this is also a question that many of us have had before too. And this is probably a question that we have asked the Lord in one way or another in some time in our lives, maybe more than once. So if you'll look in Matthew chapter 20, um, and you find chapter 20 verse 1, what I want you to do is back up one verse. And I want you to go to chapter 19 verse 30, the last verse of chapter 19, and then we're going to read the parable in chapter 20. So starting in chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus said, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius, for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, You also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. And about five in the afternoon, he went out and found them still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came, and each received a denarius. So when those who were hired first, so when those came who were hired first, I'm sorry, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. 
But he answered one of them. I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Now, how many of you have never heard this parable before? I'm just curious. Maybe? Okay, lots of you have. Awesome, awesome. Well, this is one that, again, for us to understand it, we need to read it in the context of the conversation in which Jesus is telling it. And so, just to give you a little bit of review before we start looking at at the story, if we go um, all the way back to chapter 19 and, and you back up a little bit, What happens right before that is in verse 16 of the chapter before we have the story of the rich young ruler. And many of us are familiar with that story. He comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what what do I need to do? What do I need to perform to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what are the commandments? You know them. And he begins to recite the commandments to the young man. But he recites the, the commandments, the ones that I like to call the horizontal commandments which are the ones that have to do with relationships with people. And he recites those to him, and then he ends it with one that we've already heard that he told in the story of the Good Samaritan, love your neighbor as yourself. And the rich young ruler's reply to that was what? I've done that. I've done that. I've done all of that. Um, What else do I need to do? And so we should know that when we find somebody who says, yeah, I've kept all the commandments, that they really don't understand. Um, Because what we found out in the story of the Good Samaritan, the whole point that Jesus was trying to make in telling that story was that you can't do that. You're not capable of loving your neighbor as yourself all the time, perfectly, without any fault. You're not capable of loving God faithfully, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, all of the time, without failure. And if you want to gain the kingdom based on your obedience to the law, that's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to do it perfectly and never err in it at all. And so he says to the young man, well, there's one more thing you can do. Take all your stuff, all your possessions, sell them, give the money to the poor, and come and follow me. And what was the rich young ruler's response? It says that he went away sad. He turned his back because he understood two things. One, he understood he didn't want to part with his stuff because he loved it too much. And two, he realized because of that, he couldn't be obedient to the law the way Jesus was telling him that he had to be obedient to be able to gain the kingdom on his own. Because Leviticus 19, when it said, love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus was basically saying to him, well, if you want to demonstrate to me that you have kept that commandment, the greatest way you can show me that you love your neighbor as yourself is sell all your stuff and give it away. And he couldn't do that. And so he went away sad. So then right after that encounter, Jesus is with his disciples and he starts talking to them about how difficult it is for people with lots of possessions to come into the kingdom. 
And he says for some, for some rich people it's almost impossible. And, he, and what he's saying is that, that you, what, the same thing he was saying in the story of, of the Good Samaritan. If you're holding on to your earthly things too tightly, you, you can't come into the kingdom with that. You have, to, you have to be willing to let go of those things. And he talked about how difficult it was. And so they, the disciples responded to Jesus' debrief of this encounter with the rich young ruler by saying, well, who can be saved then if it's so difficult? And Jesus replies by saying this, with man, this is impossible. Saying, if it's up to man, if it's up to you, if it's up to your ability to keep the laws and the commandments, yeah, you're right, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And what he's saying is, your effort to try to get into the kingdom on your own is useless. It is impossible. It's impossible for you to completely obey the law on your own. The only way that's possible is with God and what he does for you on your behalf. So then, right after that conversation, Peter asks the question that prompts this story of the vineyard workers. Look at verse 27. Matthew 19, 27. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? So Peter, after seeing what's happened with this rich young ruler, hearing Jesus talk about how difficult it is to get into the kingdom if you're too in love with your earthly things, and then he says, with, with man it's impossible, with, but with God, all things are possible. Peter basically says, okay, Jesus, since this guy didn't obey you, this guy didn't let go of his stuff, and he walked away from you, what will we get because we have done that? When you called us, we left our jobs, we left our families, we left our homes, we left everything, and we just started following you. Like, what you were asking him to do, he couldn't do, but, but we've done that, Lord. We followed you, we've, we've obeyed you, so what are we going to get? It, what does that mean for us? What, are we going to get to be a part of the kingdom as where that guy is not? And... I've heard uh, some pastors call uh, Peter the, the American disciple because he's the one that will just open up and, and say what he's thinking. Um, and sometimes he gets flack for that, but, but he's thinking the same thing that all of the rest of them are thinking. Peter is just the only one with the guts enough to ask the question. And isn't that a question that we ask sometimes? What's in it for me? God, what am, like this is what I've sacrificed. This is what I've given up. I see people in the world who are just living so rebellious against you. But I'm trying to follow you. I'm trying to obey. I'm trying to live a holy life. And sometimes it's so hard. God, I just wonder, is it really worth it? What is it? at the end, that's going to be the result of, of our choice to follow and obey you. And Jesus doesn't scold Peter for asking that question. Look in verses 28 through 30. This is how Jesus responds to Peter. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, 
When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you, talking to the disciples, who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Now, we could take that answer of Jesus and do a whole sermon just on the stuff that he says right here. But he, he doesn't scold Peter or rebuke Peter. He affirms Peter by answering the question. And he says that when I come and set up my millennial kingdom on earth, you 12 will have special roles of leadership among the nation of Israel and you will be the ones to rule. And you're like, you can imagine what they were thinking. Like, wow, Jesus, really? Is that, is that what you have for us? But then there's a promise not just for the 12 of them, but there's a promise for us too. Because he says anyone who sacrifices possessions or relationships in this world will receive a restoration of what they have given up. And not just will Jesus restore what you've given up, but he will do that exponentially more. Are you encouraged at the fact that, that it, what you have sacrificed in the world because of Christ, Jesus says, don't worry about it because the day will come where I'll give it all back to you. Everything that you've given up, everything that you've sacrificed, you will receive again. But he ends with that verse 30 and says, but many who will be last will be first and many who who will, uh, the first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Then Jesus tells the story of the vineyard workers. And so the question is, what is Jesus saying in this story about salvation? What is it that, that eternal life that he promises to everyone who does leave everything to follow him? The ones of us who have given our lives over to him, trusted him as Lord and Savior. What, what is it that he promises? And so, as we dive into this story, I want to give you a, a real brief background of some things that will help us understand the story. Remember, Jesus always told these stories in the context of the culture, and it was stuff that the people would be very familiar with. Us, not so much, because we don't live in that culture. But Jesus says that the owner went out to gather workers. And he doesn't say what work in the vineyard that he's calling for them to do. Whether it's to prepare the vineyard at the beginning or to prune it in the middle or to harvest the grapes at the end. But any one of those three tasks would have taken a lot of manpower. And the thing about grapes and vineyards is there was a really small window of opportunity in this region that once the grapes became ripe after the summer, there was a short window of the grapes reaching their peak ripeness and the rainy season coming. Because if you don't get your grapes harvested before the destructive rainy season comes, it can ruin an entire crop, an entire vineyard. And so there was this short window of opportunity 
where the grapes were just right, but we've got to get them all harvested before the rainy season comes. And so a vineyard owner would employ lots of workers all at one time to try to get that done in a really short window of time. It was very time-sensitive and very hectic. So it says that he went out to hire workers. Now, the first thing when I started studying this and what this looked like, the first thing I thought of was Brooklyn, New York. Our missions, our, our youth have gone on mission trips. We've done, I think, four mission trips to Brooklyn. And on three of those, uh, we encountered a street corner where uh, New Beginnings Church does a ministry they call Strange Love. And this is a corner in Brooklyn. It's the corner of Marcy Avenue and Division Avenue. And this is a corner where immigrant women will come every day. And it's this big round corner with a big fence, and there's ivy that grows up over it. And they will sit underneath that ivy on the street corner and just wait. And the Hasidic Jews, it's right in the middle of a Hasidic Jewish community. And the men, and even women sometimes, will come by that corner... And we would go and watch them. They would come by the corner and roll down their window and and point to one of these ladies. And they would walk to the car, talk to them for a minute. And then these ladies will just get in the car with whoever will hire them and go to wherever they're going to take them and do whatever work they can do. Most of them are illegal immigrants. And they will just get in the car and go for whatever money that they can make and do whatever they can do. This is kind of the picture here. You guys ever maybe been to Home Depot or Lowe's early in the morning and you see trucks parked in the parking lot with, with guys who are just hanging out in the parking lot? Well, those are usually guys that are looking for work and they're hoping that a contractor is going to come through early in the morning to get supplies. They need some extra work, even if it's just for a few hours or just for one day, and they'll hire those guys. They'll, they'll just hire them out of the parking lot. This is kind of what would happen in this time. There was a marketplace where workers like this who were just looking for, looking for something, some kind of job, some kind of income, they would go and gather, and these landowners would come, and they knew where these workers hung out and, and kind of waited to get hired, and so that's where, that's where they would go. And it says that he went early in the morning at 6, and he made a deal with the first group, and he says, for one denarius, you come work in my vineyard for this one day. And a denarius was one day's wage. Actually, a Roman soldier received one denarius for a day's wage. And so for these kind of unskilled laborers who were just looking for work, a denarius was a pretty generous offer. Um, that's, that's what a skilled laborer made in a day. And so obviously they, they, they said, yes, we'll come work for you for a denarius. Absolutely. So they went. So he goes back to the marketplace three hours later at nine. Finds more people just waiting on a job. And he says, hey, you come work in my field. And whatever's right, I'll pay you. But you notice in verse 3, he doesn't make a contract deal with the second group and the ones that come after that. He says to them in verse 3, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. He He doesn't give them a specific amount. They don't make a deal with him. He just says, hey, you come work and I will take care of you. And they go. He does it at 9. He does it at 12. He goes back at 3. And then he goes back at 5 o'clock. The work day ends at 6. And there's only one hour left in the day. But he still goes back and he finds people who are just standing around with nothing to do. And he says, why are you standing around doing nothing? And they say, because nobody will hire us. And he says, I'll hire you. Go work in my vineyard. 
And so he hires and employs all these workers. So the workday's over. It's time for everybody to get paid. And this is where you remember, every time Jesus is telling a story, usually there's a twist. There's this unexpected thing that happens that, that the people who are hearing him don't, doesn't expect. And this is that thing. He says, go bring in all the workers. It's time to pay them. But first, let's pay the ones that we hired last. That was weird. Because you don't do that. The ones who came first, the ones who'd worked the longest, they're usually the ones you want to pay and, and get out first. But he says, no, I want you to start with the last ones, the ones that have just been out there for an hour. And he gives them a whole denarius for a whole day's work, and they've only been out there an hour. And so these guys are ecstatic. That is awesome to them. And then as he goes down the line, he goes to the 3 o'clock people, gives them a denarius. Goes to the 12 o'clock, they get a denarius. Goes to the 9 o'clock, they get a denarius. And so the, the ones who are working at 6... You can imagine what they're thinking. They started, and they're like, okay, well, let's see. If we do the math, he gave, and, and he, it, it doesn't say specifically what he gave the, the other ones, but we, we know from the context that he gave everybody the same thing. But those 6 o'clock workers may not have known that. So you can imagine them thinking, okay, he gave the ones that just worked an hour a denarius. I've been here 12 hours. Maybe he's going to give me 12 denarii. That would be awesome. And so they start talking about, oh, what is he going to give us? Because he gave those guys what he promised us, but we worked way harder, way longer than they did. What, what are we going to get? Here's your denarius. What? Are you kidding me? And they go nuts. And so in his response... I think there are three things, really quick this morning, that God is teaching his disciples, that he's teaching us about the salvation that he offers to everyone who will come into his kingdom. And there's three things specifically that I think he teaches us. And these are things that I think is really important for us to understand because especially those of us who are the ones who have been working in the field since six, can't we become like they did? Can't we, don't we sometimes think, wow, don't I deserve a little bit more, God? I mean, hey, look at what I've been doing. Look at all the committees I've been on, right? Look at how long I've been tithing, God. Look at, look at all of these things I've been doing. Like, don't I deserve maybe just a little bit more? Here's the first one. The first thing, God's salvation is his Ooh, that didn't knock you out, did it? Um, it, it? That sounds pretty normal, doesn't it? That sounds pretty like, well, duh, Eric. Because salvation belongs to God, that means it doesn't belong to us. Are you with me? Now, stay with me. If we're not careful, we'll begin to think that we have an ownership over salvation that we really don't have. And you say, well, we're Christians. We do have own salvation. We do have it, we possess it, but not because it's ours, but because it's been given to us. Okay? Look at Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. John's vision, he says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That is the redeemed. 
that, that is the group we are going to be a part of. And they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation, what? Belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to him. You notice in that picture there's not different color robes designating the different levels. Like there's not the white robes and it's not like karate belts. Right? Everybody's wearing a white robe. We are all there together. In response to the complaints of the first workers that the owner hired, you notice that phrase that he says. He says, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Salvation belongs to God, not to us. Here's a point to remember. We are the recipients of salvation because God gives it in his kindness and grace. But what he gives belongs to him. What we can sometimes do, and even not really knowing that we're doing it, is because we've received such a great salvation and forgiveness and grace from God, then we begin to take ownership of it to where we think we get to make the rules as to who gets it and who doesn't. And God says, nope. That's not for you to decide. These workers were like, hey, that's not fair. They were trying to tell him what he needed to do with his money. And the owner says, don't I have the right to do what I want to with my money? Salvation is God's and God's alone. And he decides who gets it. He decides how. He decides when. He is the Lord of salvation. Okay? So number one... It's his. It's his his idea. It's his grace. And the rules that determine who gets it are authored by him. Parents, don't... Do your kids ever play the ownership card with you? And here's what I mean. We have a, a rule in our house about cell phones. At any time, I can take my kids' cell phones and look at whatever I want to look at. You know why? Who pays the bill? (laughs) Right. Because even though I give my kids cell phones and I give that to them for them to enjoy and use, they're really mine. Right? And how many of you, have you ever played that card with your kids? They're like complaining or they're taking owners. No, this is mine. This is mine. Nobody, you can't touch it. Blah. blah, blah. Oh, well, no, that really isn't yours. (laughs) That's really mine. And if I want to look at it, I'll look at it. So hand it over. Um, it's, it's, it's that kind of thing with salvation. It is his. It is his alone. And he determines how he wants to hand it out. Got that? That's number one. Number two, God's salvation is equal. Salvation is equal. All the workers receive the same pay At the end of the day. The pay that was received by the workers in this story represents salvation. The vineyard is the kingdom and God is the landowner. If you haven't already figured that out. Jesus is teaching them a very important principle here. That every person who comes in faith and repentance to Jesus receives the same gracious salvation. 
And that is an incredible truth, guys. There is no exceptions. There are no variations to it. There are no different versions of salvation. Well, this person gets this version, and this person gets this version, and if you're more faithful, you get this version. Everybody gets the same incredible, mind-blowing, life-changing grace and forgiveness. Now, this is a common thing in cults and false religions you have to watch out for because other cults and false religions have these tiers of salvation, these tiers of heaven, and say, well, the ones who are the most faithful get to be in this part of heaven, and then everybody else gets to be in this part of heaven, and maybe if you're lucky, you might get in this part, and it all depends on what you do. If you ever hear of a religion or a teacher teaching that kind of thing, then you know it's a cult. It's a false religion. True salvation, it doesn't matter. If you come to Christ as a small child and you live your life of faith throughout your entire life or you humble yourself on your deathbed, everybody gets the same thing. Everybody receives the same gracious salvation. Do you realize that the thief on the cross received the same salvation that Abraham had? There's no difference. I mean, you look at the life of Abraham. He was the, the, the starting point of the nation of Israel. How important was he? How, what, what a big deal his life was. And here's this insignificant thief on the cross who at the last hours of his life humbles himself before Jesus. And he says, you know what? They both walked into the same grace and forgiveness because of their faith. Now, I don't want us to get confused. The Bible does tell us that the Lord will give out rewards varying according to our faithfulness once we are in eternity. Okay, And that's a, that's a whole different thing. That for those who are in Christ, there is an accountability. That we will, we will be accountable for what we've done with the grace and salvation that we've been given. But when it comes to the grace and salvation that we're given, everybody gets the same one. The crown of life, the crown of righteousness, and the crown of glory that the Bible talks about. Everybody gets those who've put their faith in Christ. There aren't tiers of the kingdom. There's not sections of the kingdom. There's no seniority in the kingdom of God. doesn't matter how long you've been there. And there's another thing that we have to notice. The ones who grumbled and complained did so because they thought the owner was paying them based on how much they worked. Now get this. The reason they thought they were going to get something different was because they thought the landowner's basis for how he was paying the workers was how much work they did. But they were wrong. That's not why he hired them. Everybody got the same pay because he really wasn't paying them because of their work. He was paying them because of his own kindness. He was paying them because of his own grace. He gave them what he gave them because of who he was and what he wanted, not because of anything they had done. That's the only way this story makes sense. Why in the world would he give the people who only worked an hour the same thing, the ones who worked 12 hours? Because he really wasn't paying them based on how much they did. He was paying them because they came. When he said, come work in my vineyard, they came. And he says, everybody who comes into my vineyard, 
I want to give everybody the same gracious offering. Here's another point to remember. Salvation is a gift, not a payment. God gives it equally to everyone who comes because no one can produce enough to earn it. You know why? He gives it equally to everybody because it doesn't matter how good you are. You're never going to earn it. And this whole system that we think in our minds of, well, I'm more faithful so I can, like, it's, it, Jesus says it's just not true. This whole system of self-righteousness that, that the Pharisees were building in the, in, in the nation of Israel was just all completely off base and fake. And Jesus came to reveal that, and that's what he's teaching here. There's another interesting thing that Jesus does. I want you to look at two different verses. The beginning, now Jesus does this on purpose, the beginning of the story and the end of the story. Put it up there. For verse 30, the beginning of the story, Jesus says, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And you notice at the end of the story, he says the same thing, but he reverses it. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. He says the same thing, But do you see how it's flipped at the end? You know what that does? That makes the story like two bookends. What he has done is made everything perfectly symmetrical. Everything is even. Everything is equal. It's like my wife makes fun of me, Kim, Kim all the time. If we're decorating the house or if I'm putting stuff, like I love everything to be symmetrical. Is anybody with me? Like, like if there's a thing on, in this corner of the room, there's got to be at least that same thing or something that looks a lot like it on the other, like in that corner of the room. And if, like if we're doing the stage, if, if there's something sitting right here, then there's got to be something sitting right here. Or it's just going to drive me nuts. Or if something's right here, then we got to go over here and figure out where to put something. Because something's got to be right here. Because everything's got to be even and symmetrical. Jesus does that with this story. And this is his way of saying, look, when it comes to salvation, there is no pecking order. There is no, no seniority. The, the merit and this system of, of who deserves what... Is not a part of my kingdom. It may be a part of your world, but it's not a part of mine. And I just mix everything up so that everything becomes equal. So not only is God's salvation his, and it's equal, but here's the best one. Here's the last one. God's salvation is generous. It's so, so generous. Look at the response of the landowner again with verse 13 in chapter 20. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Look at that last question. Or are you envious because I'm generous? You know the only times, have you noticed something about us? The only times that we cry unfair, unfair is when it doesn't work out in our favor. You get that? Here's an example. So say you go to Chick-fil-A. You order a 12-piece nugget at Chick-fil-A. You go to sit down, you open up your box. There's only 10 nuggets in that box. What are you going to do? I want my other two nuggets. Why? Because that's not fair. I paid for 12. 
I should get 12. I only have 10. You're going to go back up to the counter, and you're going to say, hey, I only got 10 nuggets, and then they're probably just going to give you a whole other box of 10 and say, it's my pleasure. And then you're going to have, like, so many more nuggets. But that's not fair. You're not just going to sit and go, oh, that's not a big deal. What happens if you get to your seat and you got 13 nuggets in your box? Shh. Don't tell anybody. I got 13 nuggets in my box. This is what you're going to do. You're going to take a picture of it and post it on Instagram, hashtag blessed. I got 13 nuggets in my box today. You're not going to say anything about that. You're not going to take your box of 13 nuggets and go back to the counter and say, you know what, this isn't fair. Because I only paid for 12 and you gave me 13. So I need to give one of these back. You're never going to do that. The only time we cry about things being unfair is when we're not on the good end of it. Every one of those other workers, the 9 o'clock, the 12 o'clock, the 3 o'clock, the 5 o'clock, you think any of them were crying unfair? No. Why? Because the landowner was being kind and generous and gracious to them because he wanted to be. But he was being fair to the ones who, who started. He, he was actually being more than fair. I said before, a denarius for, for those kind of workers, that was generous for, for the, the 6 o'clock guys that started at the beginning of the day. But then when they started looking at what everybody else had, they got jealous. They got envious. Here's the last point to remember. The gospel is generous to everyone because it's deserved by no one. The only time we start getting upset and crying unfair, unfair is when we start thinking that we deserve something. And if we can always, when it comes to our relationship with God and it comes to salvation and grace and we see God pour that out on other people, we should rejoice. We should be thrilled we should celebrate with them because the master has been generous to them even if we feel like he's just been fair but you know what even to the ones that he we say well maybe he's just being fair to me that is more than gracious because you know what you really deserve is hell so don't ever decide you want to stand before god and tell him what you deserve God, have mercy on your soul if you are arrogant enough to do that. The gospel is generous to all people because there aren't any people who deserve it. But God, why do you bless them more than me? God, uh, they don't do as much as I do. God, they, they have things that I don't have. I deserve better. No, you don't. You just don't. He says, wasn't I gracious in giving you forgiveness? Wasn't I gracious in giving you my son on the cross? 
how much more do you want? It just doesn't matter. Just the same way that sin is the great equalizer that causes all of us to fall short of the glory of God because of sin, grace is that equalizer that makes every person equally alive in Jesus. The consequences of sin that made all of us sinners, grace comes in and says, you know what, I'm going to take care of all that equally for everybody. And that is good news. And if that's good news, we should be grateful for it. We should celebrate it in other people's lives. And for the other people who have not been a part of it, we've got to tell them. Because there isn't any greater news.